and welcome to Animation Celery. Crunchy conversations about classic cartoons. You should see our new contracts. I'm Matsy. And I'm Micah. Here's how this show goes. Uh, the two of us give each other assignments of cartoons to watch, and then we reconvene and we give them reviews and discussion. Uh, at the front of the show, though, we just like to have ourselves a little chat. So, Matsy, how was your week? Anything interesting? I was on vacation this week, so that was nice. It's the mm. first time I've been on vacation since 2006, or at least the first time I've been on vacation without going somewhere. Mm. Staycation, the best. Yeah, yeah. You'd think I would have done more, but I didn't. I, As I said last time, uh, The Binding of Isaac Repentance was out, so I've been playing some of that, which I am starting to suspect has drained the fun out of that game. Mm. Um, I think some of the balance changes they've made it have kind of ground all the highs and lows into a mediocre paste. Okay. Um, but I won't dwell on that too much. Um, the only other... The, the cartoon thing that I've been doing, this is territory that we've already walked over, but I just fell into it. I started watching a whole bunch of my life as a teenage robot. Ah, cool. Turns out that show's really, really good. Hmm. Um, I'm probably about halfway through the series now. There's only three seasons, I believe. And I'm about halfway through the second season. I don't think I have found a bad episode yet. Like, hmm. there's there are some that are less interesting than others, obviously. Like, there's one where she's playing football, and it's like, okay, it, I'm... I'm I'm the sort of person who I'm not a football fan, but I'm a little annoyed at the flagrant disdain for the rules of football. Yeah, right. Well, you know, uh, I'm already excited because it's an episode of uh, characters playing a sport. But uh, yeah, yeah, that that bugs me too. Uh, like major movies too, and they get the rules wrong, or they get even just like the spirit wrong of a game. Yeah, I remember. I remember. I, this is only tangentially related, but I remember there was an episode of The Simpsons, I guess it would have been in 2010, because it involved the Winter Olympics here in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And um, there was like a... They had doubles curling. Huh. And um, Marge and Homer were on a team, and they ended up winning the gold medal because Marge and, well, I guess the two of them together, uh, got the stone directly into the center. Yeah. And I'm looking as like, there's no other stones on the board. You could have thrown that anywhere and you would have scored the point and win. But, you know, it, it's the rules of curling. Like, not a lot of Americans know the rules of curling. I mean, the people who made um, The Great North did because they did that one episode about curling. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, like, um, this is an old story. You know, where there's a cartoon and there's a sport in it and they just, you know, oh, sure, you only have two players left. That's fine. You can still field a team. Oh, you want to burrow under the ground and come up in the end zone? Yeah, that's legal. It's funny, though, that they sort of uh, cheapen the visual interest of curling, of having all those stones and ricocheting behind another. Like, it, it, it's kind of boring if they're just trying to get to the center of the target. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember that episode very well. In fact, I can't say for sure that I've seen it all the way through. I think I just saw the end of it, hmm. and they're all cheering. And, and you'd think I would have watched it because it's set in Vancouver. Like, it's it's the episode of The Simpsons that's in my home city. Right. Um, but it's later stage Simpsons, and I'm, I'm not that interested in watching it. 
There's a um, more classic episode where it turns out that Lisa's a really great hockey goaltender. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, it, yes. I know what you're going to say. Yeah, go ahead. The, they choose for her uh, her saves. She, she does a lot of like midair stick saves. It bugs me. Oh, that's not what I thought you were going to say. Yeah, she like anyway, like she, she'll fall and then and then save it with the uh, the paddle up in the air. And it's really weird anyway. Yeah. Um, what bugs me about that one is that it comes down to this showdown where Bart and Lisa. Oh, yeah. Like, where it's a penalty shot. Right. And they're like, oh, it's Bart versus Lisa. Yeah. And then Bart chooses not to shoot and time expires and everyone's annoyed that it's a tie. Yeah. And I'm like, one, the clock would not be running during a penalty shot. And two, if he had made the shot and Lisa had made the save, it still would have been a tie. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sports that Canadians know. Anyway, yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't want to talk too You know, we've already talked about my life as a teenage robot, but I'm here to reiterate. It's very good. I think one of the things about Jenny's design that I really like is the fact that her the inside of her mouth is white. Like her mm. mouth is just an outline. So that whenever she smiles, she could be either this big open mouth grin or a big toothy grin. And you can't tell. And it's just this really unique look. There's an episode where she's getting cleaned up. Um, mm -hmm. I originally saw it in GIF form on Tumblr years ago, where she's kind of getting a spa treatment yeah. at, an, at an auto body shop, where these guys are like pounding dents out of her and putting her in a bath of acid. And just her facial expressions during that whole sequence are just so wonderful. Like it, it, that show just looks so great. It's written so well. There are a lot of episodes, especially early on, that kind of follow the, um, this formula of Jenny seeing humans doing something, not really understanding it because she can't doing it, can't mm -hmm. do it. Um, she goes and asks her mom. Her mom has worked on this already, but shelved it. She steals it, and then it backfires on her. There are a lot of episodes that kind of follow that formula, but. Like I said, I don't think there's a bad episode that I have seen so far. It's it's really good. I just watched an episode. Um, it was a they're short episodes, like mm -hmm. 11 minutes. So they would come in, in two packs in a half hour block. Right. Yeah. And so the first half was called Armageddroid, which was about this giant robot um, that thought it was a force of justice because mm -hmm. it was designed to eliminate all weapons. OK. But it was destroying the city to do so. And then the second half of that block was an episode called Kilgore, which uh. was about this little tiny wind-up robot that was programmed to be a villain and was ineffectually trying to apprehend Jenny because the cluster had told him sarcastically that they would make him their leader if he could capture her. Okay. Great episodes. Just, hmm. man, that show is just great. I think if I would revisit it, I'd want to be like choosy because I would like search out the Sheldon episodes and try to skip the Brad ones. <laughs> well, there there is one episode that is largely about Brad um, mm. where he joins the Skyway Patrol. Yeah. Um, and the Skyway Patrol are basically the Vogons from the um, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie. Yeah. OK. Where everything's got to be paperwork. You know, before we can do anything, we have to do the paperwork to do this thing. And hmm. anyway... That's pretty much what I did. I, I still think you should finish Star vs. the Forces of Evil, but I think time is not wasted uh, catching up on this show. And 
I kind I was thinking about it, and I kind of hope that um, maybe they can somehow finagle a Netflix movie out of it, because worse cartoons have had better fates. If it's computer animated, you can confirm whether or not that's teeth or a uh, empty gap. Oh, it it, it <laughs> wouldn't be. I I would hope I would hope that they'd be smart enough not to do that because. It, it just looks so good. And other other cartoons that have had movies on Netflix, like Rocco's Modern Life and mm-hmm. Invader Zim Enter the Florpus. Did you okay. watch that? Uh, Invader Zim in general? I was not a big fan of it. I mean, I, a lot of people seem to really like it. Uh... It's it, it seems good when you watch it, and then you look back on it and you think, actually, there was select episodes that were really good, but on the whole... Hmm. I thought the movie Enter the Florpus was quite good. Hmm. I guess uh, it depends also if you find the art style uh, really charming, and I'm kind of eh on it. Yeah, I can see that. Hmm. The one thing about Enter the Florpus that kind of made me sigh was they gave a minor role to Justin Roiland. Hmm. And I'm just, uh, of course he's in this, because Justin Roiland is just in everything now. Doing what does he do? One of the... Uh, he... So you might know him as Lemon Grab in uh, okay. uh, Adventure Time, right? but he is best known as the mastermind behind Rick and Morty. Oh. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. The uh, Remember I'd said when I did My Life as a Teenage Robot that I saw a pin for it? Yeah. I actually yeah. got, like, I, I don't really know this person, but but uh, I follow her often enough, like, on the on the train. Getting off the train, yeah. so on. So I got a closer look at her backpack where the pin was, and <laughs> it was actually uh, Rick, but he was just in a blue and white color scheme, <laughs> and, he, and he had, like, I think, he had rabbit ears on for some reason. So that's why it really looked to me like Jenny. Well, that's too bad. <laughs> yeah, it was. It, man, it was almost something good. I guess we should talk about Rick and Morty at some point in the future because now people are thinking we're we have a low opinion of it. We won't go into it now. You know, I, I, I don't think I do. I just think it's not grabbed me. I don't think I hate it or anything. You know? I, my opinion of it. Okay. I didn't, I, my intention wasn't to go into it, but yeah. just to give a very brief analysis, my official opinion of Rick and Morty by Matsy. Mm-hmm. I think it has some very smart sci-fi and some very interesting ideas. Yeah. Being in place to support a pretty bad voice actor. <laughs> um, Justin Roiland has like two voices and he also needs, I'm sure he kind of has free reign to do whatever he wants, but he needs someone to direct him because mm. he is the worst voice actor in that show from a performance standpoint. Well, he's, because Rick. He's, he's Rick and Morty. Yeah. Okay. He stammers everything. That's the style and, though, right? It's his specific style. Every other person in that show doesn't do that. And that's what makes it stand out. Hmm. Like every other actor, like I was thinking about it. And if you gave, if you gave any actor on that show, if you gave, you know, um, I can't remember the guy's name, but the guy who does the voice of Jerry, um, Beth Summer, if you gave all of the characters the same line to read, Mm -hmm. I can picture it in my head, the way that they would all read it. And Rick and Morty, would have this whoa, 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 yeah. like at the like they wouldn't be able to get it out and the fact that he is the only actor in the show that does that and he does it for every character that he voices 
makes okay. it really stand like he's trying to sound like a he's having a natural conversation like the way somebody would actually say something like that at the spur of the moment right. okay i know what but, you mean but because he's the only one who does it it stands out and sounds fake hmm yeah i, I mean i wouldn't have said he was a terrible voice actor i just think that it's uh, it's so far not grabby but i've I think I've watched a sum total of two episodes, so. There there are parts of it that actually really did grab me. Mm. And what I have been told, there was one particular episode that I mentioned to my brother who really likes this show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned this one episode and he kind of went, oh yeah, that's the episode everybody loves. Okay. And it's because the idea, the premise of the show that doesn't become apparent immediately is that there are multiple alternate dimensions, mm-hmm. each one of which has its own Rick who has his own Morty there as camouflage because Morty's stupidity hides his genius. Okay. Um, And so there is this entire place called the Citadel, which is like a hub of Rick's and Morty's from all various dimensions. Mm. And there's this one episode that's just centered on the Citadel and the life and times of a couple of different versions of Rick and Morty. That's really interesting. And it was my favorite episode of the show. And that's why I mean when I say, like, the show has good ideas. Okay. And and I guess, you know, Justin Roiland isn't a terrible voice actor. I shouldn't say that. Like, mm. he only has two voices, like I said. But it's just, he needs, I guess he's a terrible director. He needs to let somebody else guide him in his voice acting. Hmm. Well, maybe this is something our fans can help us out on, right? Because I imagine a lot of them are fans of the show and... They can uh, point us to the ones that would make us believers. Yeah. I mean, I have watched the first three seasons. Mm. Um, oh, okay. I haven't, I haven't watched four. Um, I think five might be coming soon. Wow. But, you, um, you were committed <laughs> to giving it a shot. My brother gave me a DVD of season one to borrow. And then mm. I was interested enough that I sought out season two. And then when season three came out, I was like, everybody's talking about this damn pickle Rick. So what the hell is a damn pickle Rick? Exactly. God, I saw somebody walked into my work today or or um, yesterday wearing a face mask that was Pickle Rick's mouth. Mm. I was like, ugh, glad you're wearing a mask, but this is the cottage industry that's popped up. <laughs> What's new with you? Oh, okay. I've got the conversation killer. Okay. So I had a strange dream. All right. All right. So uh, uh, my girlfriend dragged me uh, along to a job prospect. And it was this, is this in real life or in the dream? In the dream. In the dream. Okay. It was all okay. the dream. Uh, okay. So it was a weird fly-by-night sort of business. You know, the, yeah. the kind that rents those offices in uh, those, like, uh, ugly rectangular buildings surrounded by parking lots. Sure, sure. Yeah. The business was a consultation phone line and probably text chat, too, for help with video games. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, like, those, those old things. But Nintendo helpline. Yeah, yeah. It, but it used the data from your calls uh, so that the uh, operator could then make toy offers to the caller. <laughs> so it was like a fun office. So it's got toys all over it already. Mm-hmm. And it was just setting up. So the first thing that struck me is going in, there's a flight of stairs up uh, into the office. And it had just like toys on the on each stair on the way up that hadn't been dealt with, right? They're both in box and out of box. Right. And there's several stairs that have Masters of the Universe classics figures on them. Okay. One in particular that I remember was a line of Manny faces uh, 
one that wasn't completely assembled. <laughs> yeah, like his, his, his face column was missing. Yeah. Uh, the dream was in the current era. So also it struck me right away is that nobody was masked. There was no social <laughs> distancing. Right? Uh, so after we have this little tour, we get a questionnaire. And uh, it was like those... Have you ever had a fun job application? You know, it's got the regular stuff, like what's your work history and so on. But then it's got questions like, which of these video game characters would make good salespeople? A, Cloud Strife, and like so on, right? <laughs> okay. So like, this place was uh, really dodgy, right? Like, uh, pay was by commission, and it was oh. in cryptocurrency. Oh. <laughs> and so... I. <laughs> I like probed them all the time about the pay and they like dodged me every time. Uh, I... <laughs> You're getting paid in Dogecoin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I asked to see like our guide's pay stub and he said, oh, I'm not comfortable with that. Right. Mm -hmm. And eventually I badgered them enough that they showed me an example wherein there was like a pay ceiling that kicked in to limit the payout. <laughs> uh, anyways, I, 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 I talked to their, uh, uh, I talked to the ladies because like almost every junior employee there, the salesperson was a young woman. So I think that was like another angle, right? Was that you, you'd, you'd want to call there because you'd have like a pseudo relationship with a young woman, right? <laughs> okay. And they admitted that at that point, they scarcely worked any of the day. <laughs> but nonetheless, I decided to uh, give it a shot. And I came in the next day uh, with Raven, right? Right. So we, we talked with the owner who was a young guy uh, and he was... He was like excited about showing us the secondary project. Uh, so it, the secondary project was a tabletop role-playing game that also had multimedia events. <laughs> okay. So yeah, it's <laughs> not, not only was this sketchy, but it was like bad ideas, right? Um, <clears throat> so we're looking through this booklet and Raven just keeps dumping on it, right? She's finding <laughs> everything wrong with it. I don't think this is something she would find in real life, but there was one point where she was like, uh, there were uh, player kits, right, for for picking your uh, your your type of uh, player character. Yeah. And she noted that the uh, the pole arm that was listed on each one was wrong in the artwork of every single one. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so at this point, I, I like I closed the book and look at the front, and the guy who made the game was the guy who was talking to us. Uh huh. Um. So I, I like I, I distract from the moment because I could see how like crestfallen he was. <laughs> we just were dumped on this thing. Uh. I pointed out an Easter egg he hadn't realized that the world map had a continent shaped like his face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there, there was like a monitor there, right? That was playing like video, and occasionally what would come up was this, uh, uh, like the globe of his setting spinning around and round. I was pointing out, like, no, no, look, like where where Africa would have been. It was like. Uh, the, the shadows of like under your browser lakes and stuff. And I kind of like save the situation. <laughs> uh, that's great. And it, yeah, dreams are bad fodder, but, but I thought that was <clears throat> full of enough weird stuff. Oh, oh, there was another bit where I was looking at the shelves and, uh, uh of like, uh, of stock. And there was a transformer that was like a, a double decker, uh, car transport. Mm -hmm. He was, like uh, twice as wide as Ultra Magnus. <laughs> and his robot form was like white and black. So he made me think of Metroplex quite a bit. And I mm. guess he was probably like 
one of the series of convoy Autobot leaders. But yeah. uh, the 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 size of his height was nearly two feet tall. And oh wow, yeah, there's a note on on him that he was seven hundred dollars, which seemed ridiculous. But that seems that's almost like. Because there was a period where they made really big Transformers. Like, they had Metroplex. Mm -hmm. And then they had, like, there was this Decepticon one turned into a dinosaur of some kind. I can't remember what it was called. Trypticon. Sure. And I could almost imagine them. Because, you know, they had that, like, big aircraft carrier for G.I. Joe and Space Shuttle and stuff. And they just kind of went crazy with stuff. I could imagine them going, like, all right, here's the super big Transformer. Um and now that I'm saying that out loud, I'm pretty sure there's a Transformer version of Unicron somewhere. In fact, it's it's coming out now. They they like I can't remember the the toy company, but they previewed it at a con, hmm. and it had enough support, even though the thing is stupid expensive. I don't know if it's seven hundred dollars, but uh, yeah, well. and it's huge. Like obviously, it's not <laughs> it's not properly to scale with Cliff Jumper or anything. But well, uh, no, no. <laughs> incidentally, I hate Unicron. I love that that movie, but mm. uh, they've reiterated him in so many Transformers reboots. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I, I'm not up to date on my Unicron. Well, a lot more. of the time, he's just not interesting. Like, even in the Transformers movie, when he transforms, the moment is cool, but then they have a hard time dramatizing that this is, you know, any more dangerous than when he's in his planet form. Mm. Uh, when they did the, like, Armada and Energon uh, series, it's like TV, right? So yeah. he was, like, largely immobile. And it was stretched yeah. over episodes, so he really seemed impotent because he wasn't doing anything. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess you gotta make him seem weak, because the realistic answer is, like, a robot that size could just, like, pick up the Earth and... Well, I mean, I was gonna say pick up the Earth and put it in his mouth, but that's literally what Unicron does. I, well, I don't think he could. Because I think Cybertron is significantly smaller than Earth. Okay. But uh, that's a problem a lot of series I have, uh, have I find. Like, uh, when they introduce an enemy that is overwhelmingly powerful, but then they want a climax to go on a long time, it just mm. seems like he's doing nothing, you know? Yeah. When you could snuff, snuff good guys in an instant. But. Sure, yeah. Anyway, we should get on to the cartoons. All right. Yeah, so I gave you one to review. Let's hear about it. Yeah, you gave me The Legend of Calamity Jane, which is a series that I was unfamiliar with. Oh, really? Yeah, I'd never seen this. And the reason I'd never seen it is because it only aired for three we uh, three weeks. Yeah. I think it was 1997, if I remember correctly. Correct. On the WB, or the kids' WB or something. And you can tell, because it looks, it looks very much like Batman the Animated Series. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure it's drawn on black, like Batman was. Uh, mm. Similar character designs and everything. Um, it's basically about a fictionalized version of Calamity Jane in the um, the middle of the 19th century. What you might call... You could call it the cowboy days, mm -hmm. or immediately after. I think, I think I saw that it was set in, like, 1975... Or no, 1875, no, no. Yeah, sorry, yeah. 1875, 1975. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> the Legend of Groovy Jane. <laughs> Directed by Ralph Bakshi. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, it's a fictionalized version of Calamity Jane, um, where she's just kind of this, she doesn't have any real authority that I can see, but she's sort of a 
vigilante who mm. has in the good graces of enough people in power that they'll let her they'll give her a chance to right wrongs before they do it themselves. Right. This particular episode is called Slip a Slip of the Whip, um, which seems to be just a title that they gave it because she has a whip. It doesn't really have anything to do with what happens in the episode. Right. They could call it it's the first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And the basic idea here is that the town's people and the army and the Comanche Indian tribe are all sort of at odds because they've all been seemingly attacking each other. Mm-hmm. And Calamity eventually figures out that it's a villainous gang of a guy named Bill Doolin who is, uh, has stolen some clothing from the cavalry and is behind all the mischief. Trying to the it's an elaborate uh, plot to get the uh, the Comanche and the cavalry to go to war against each other, thus mm. distracting them long enough for them to steal the gold that is coming in on the railway. So, you know, old west stuff. Yes, yes. She stops them from hijacking the train. Um, there's a there's, I mean, let's see, I. How how specific should I get here? Uh, I think you can just like I mean, uh, there's twists and turns and death traps and you know, and information gathering. There's all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's specific things that I notice. Like there's <laughs> she she gets the train away from the villains because they're they had it stopped at the station and we're gonna ransack it. But she kicked them out and started it up. And they're lamenting, like, oh, she's on the train. We can't catch her now. She's on her way to the ravine. It's like, And they plot to blow up the bridge. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, you can't catch up with the train, but you can get to the bridge before it? Yeah, I guess it's not. They, it would have been good if they'd shown a map or something like that where they could go, like, we can we can get to the ravine where the bridge is first or something. And you know? even then, they kind of miss her by seconds because the explosion's going on behind her. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like weird little, you know, things that were contrived for the sake of having an interesting, you know, story. Yeah. I think, like I said, this show lasted for three weeks. A full season, a full 13 episodes was made. They only aired three in North America, but the rest aired um, because this was a joint production of like Warner Brothers Animation or whatever and um, uh, France. (laughs) As seemingly tons of cartoons were. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, it looks like a French cartoon. Hmm. Can, I mean, I say it looks like Batman, the animated series, and it does, but you can also see how those cartoons share DNA with the French cartoons. Hmm. Especially of that era. Yes. Hmm. This show is decidedly second tier. Like, I think it's interesting. Hmm. Like, I like the way it looks. I like the idea of it. Right. I think the execution isn't up to the standards of... I mean, it's hard to hold anything to the standards of Batman the Animated Series, because that's one of the best animated series ever made. Mm. But at the same time, you can kind of tell that it's sort of... Like, the voice acting... Something I didn't realize, actually. Um, I thought the voice acting was kind of lackluster, for the most part. Oh, yeah? Um, Just kind of boring. Now, what I discovered after the fact is that kind of... At the last minute, like two weeks before it was going to air, they decided to recast Calamity Jane. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, obviously it was already animated by that point. And so they had a totally new actor come in and redo all of Calamity Jane's lines. Yeah. It's got Frank Welker in it doing his (laughs) uh, Western old man voice. 
and and bunches of stuff, no doubt. Oh yeah, he's got to be more than he's got to be more than one thing in there. But you can yeah. definitely like the calamity sidekick Joe. You can definitely hear you know it's that that Frank Welker voice is this voice that everybody knows. Yeah, yeah. Hey, like, uh, yeah. Hey, you you mentioned they recast. Did you do you know who the original voice was for Calamity Jane? Uh, I saw the name, but it didn't stand out to me. No, it was Jennifer Jason Lee. Oh my gosh, you're right. Yeah. It did. Yes, I yeah, forgot I, about that. You know, it's funny though that you don't, I guess you don't like it, but I think the the person they cast, Barbara Scaff, I really like her as Calamity Jane. Oh, she's fine. It's just nothing stands out. To, to me, the, she's got a real nice warmth to her voice. Mm-hmm. So it really seems to me like, you know, that combined with uh, her design at its best, we'll say. The, you know, the ghost sure. white skin and flame red hair that yeah. I, I think that it's believable that Wild Bill Hickok and Captain O'Rourke are in love with her and let her get away with stuff. Sure. Uh, maybe China, guess, the, uh, the Indian as well, the, the uh, native. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, now that I'm hearing you say this and I'm thinking about it, maybe what it is is because something I noticed right away was the voice of the uh, the Comanche. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them, basically. I mean, there yeah. aren't a lot of them that talk, but. I have in my head a specific cartoon Indian voice. Okay. Which is sort of every Indian in the Simpsons and John Redcorn. Okay. And these Indians, and by the way, I looked up, (laughs) this led to me looking up what the proper way to refer to people of this ethnicity are. Yeah. Or is. Um, And it seems like there's no real consensus. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like American. I mean, I know that uh, your girlfriend Raven is uh, uh, Aboriginal yes. uh, Canadian. Um, yeah. In Canada, we tend to refer to them as the First Nations. Well, that's only a, a little. Gr- uh, that's not every. Anyway, yeah. Well, no, no. I it's yeah. Um, but anyway, what I've looked up is apparently in America because these are this is the West of America. Right. It seems like a, a term that they quite prefer is American Indian. Hmm. But they will also accept Indian or Native American. Right. So I'm just going to say Indian just because it's quick and it's what they call them in this show. Okay. Anyway, as I was saying, the Indians in this show, like I have an Indian voice in my head and none of these Indians are that voice, Hmm. which is good because it means it's not a stereotype. Right. And, you know, there's a lot of cowboy stereotypes, you know, the West, the cowboy, the Western woman, the Indian and you have in your head a set idea of what they're going to sound like. And in this show, they don't. And again, that's a good thing because it's not stereotypical. Yes. But I think maybe that might be affecting my opinion of the voice acting because it's so different from what I expect. Huh. Well, and I guess especially when Frank Welker is exactly what you'd expect. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like maybe it's, you know, maybe I'm just looking for something familiar and it's like, oh, there's a voice I know. Bill Hickok wasn't bad. He's not in much of this episode, but... No. You know, I think this whole show has a greater ambition than it has the experience and resources to be. Yes. So both its visuals and its storytelling. So when you feel like, you know, that maybe the situation with uh, uh, with the soldiers and the Comanches is just sort of... uh, it, It moves a little fast. It doesn't give you... It, it it doesn't really, like, round the idea into shape, right? Yeah, like, the writing isn't quite... You can tell that they have big ideas, and they want this show to be spectacular. 
Um, they just don't quite have the chops to pull it off. Maybe a second season would have. Because there's a lot of cartoons that are like that, where, you know, the first season you can see the potential, and then the second season, they really hit it. You can definitely see that it has style, right? Oh, but yeah. I think I think there's like... Uh, it's a problem that Calamity Jane is the main character, but I feel like half the time they don't really know how to draw her head. Mm, so like the way yeah. her hair conforms to her head and whether there should be ears in front of it or not. They, yeah. I've noticed some different looks on her face too, like at different angles, like looking at her straight on or from the side, like she just kind of has a completely different facial expression each, like not expression, but like just the construction of her face is a little Mm. Not not inconsistent, but they don't quite, like you're saying, they don't quite know what to do with it. Right. And it's, I guess it's the director, right, who really needs to pull that all together to make it all consistent. Maybe it's the angle, but whenever they show a character in like sort of a three-quarter profile and it's got mm-hmm. both of their eyes, it really looks like the far eye is lazy and looking inward hmm. on multiple characters. I don't want to sound like I'm just totally ragging on this show because, like I said, it has style, it has ambition. Um, it's probably a good idea. Yeah, she's cool. Yes, I actually started looking up um, the actual Calamity Jane. Oh, nothing. This is this is Wild West tradition, right? Where the the reality is nothing like the story. Yes, and that got me thinking about just to just to um, tie that up. Uh, Calamity Jane wasn't some western superhero she was somebody who lived in the old west she was apparently a very just person she had some adventures uh she went on to uh be a storyteller in Mm. buffalo bills traveling circus or whatever uh she was apparently an on again off again prostitute um Mm. and she was a raging alcoholic which eventually contributed to her death in like 1903 Hmm. I think the part about her uh, having an association with Wild Bill's correct, though. It's disputed. Oh, okay. It, it ranges from they never really, or they were in a wagon train together one time, hmm. up to they were married and had children. Hmm. It's apparently they were buried next to each other. And even that's disputed. Like some say, oh, it was her wishes to be buried next to her best friend. And then some of Wild Bill Hickok's friends are like, we thought it would just be funny to bury her next to him and annoy him in the afterlife. (laughs) (laughs) This led to an interesting thought that I had about how this is the American equivalent of a mythology. Mm-hmm. Because they, this is what they do a lot, where you have all these characters like Wild Bill Hickok and Calamity Jane and um, Wyatt Earp, uh, Doc Holliday, all right. these characters that are just made into generally heroes. Daniel Boone is another one. They're made into heroes in their mythology, even though that might not have anything to do with, you know, some of them might have been criminals, in fact. But right. because it's a famous name, they were an early version of the celebrity. In the times themselves, like not even in the future, past. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. And so this is kind of what America has for a mythology. Hmm. Um, it has people who existed in the past. And, and, you know, there are some people whose lives are recorded so perfectly that it can't be Somebody like, um, you know, the early presidents, like a George Washington or an Abraham Lincoln. Like, you can't 
say that Abraham Lincoln actively fought in the Civil War and was a war hero or something like that, because it's documented that he didn't, and everybody mm-hmm. knows presidential history. But for someone like, you know, a Doc Holliday, you can kind of just say that he did whatever. Right. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't remember what thing I was watching. It was about the uh, the history of, of the quick-draw gunfight. Uh-huh. And the uh, could only find one instance where it might have happened. <laughs> and that, you know, most of the other stuff was really just one guy getting the drop on the other on like, as, like, revenge for gambling and drinking and stuff. Yeah. And even then, it was, like, you know, firearms of the era. So it wasn't like, bang, he's dead. It was like, bang, bang, we're out of bullets. Now I stab him to death. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's, you know, that's part of the duels in the uh, in the colonial times, like... The idea of, you know, you walk away, turn and fire. And it's like, oh, we both missed. Well, we both proved that we were willing to die for what we believe in. So shake hands and we're friends again. Ah, that's funny. Or you end up like Alexander Hamilton and die. Yeah. So I guess overall you would say uh, interesting show. It's got its drawbacks, but, you know. It's an interesting show. It has its drawbacks. Like it's, you know, I... I wonder what a second season would have been like, but also I understand why there wasn't a second season. Maybe I don't understand why it only lasted three episodes. It but... did get rerun. I think it was like a replacement kind of thing. I I remember seeing it at the time and thinking, this is pretty neat, but I think it ultimately lost out to something on our one of our Canadian channels, right? Like Saber Rider and the Star Sheriffs or something. Well, the version that I saw, like, I could only find one version of this online, and I found the same version on multiple websites because it all had started with the same volume and tracking adjustments. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it had the Teletoon logo in the corner. Yeah. Um, which is the animation channel here in Canada. So it's entirely possible that here in Canada, because, you know, I, like, on the WB, it aired for three weeks. But yeah. who knows? Here in Canada, you know, maybe they just got all of them and put them on every weekday and they were done in... Two weeks. I think it was Fox. Okay. I don't think the WB I could see was that. Thing. Yeah. I could imagine that. It was, it was, well, it was probably bought by WB and then aired there and then aired everywhere. You know, it's just a cheap thing that could fill half an hour. But. Well, yeah. I mean, well, hmm, I'm thinking about it at the time because like Warner Brothers stuff would show up on Fox, like Batman or Animaniacs or what have you. Yeah. But I guess it was by 97, WB had their own channel. So they right. weren't doing that, doing that as much, but... But yes, your assessment is correct. I think it's interesting. Um, not great, but it had potential. Maybe it could have been something. As it is, it's just an interesting, average, mature cartoon for this era. Hmm. Now, what about you? Do you have anything average or above average from that era? <laughs> what a setup. <laughs> uh, so you recommended that I watch Little Shop, the first episode entitled Bad Seed, written by Mark Eden Edwards, and I believe also developed by Mark Eden Edwards, the, the series. It's sure. from 1991. Now, this is based on Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, who is the director? Uh, is it Roger Corman? Yeah, it's Roger Corman. Galaxy okay. of Terror and all that. Anyway, yeah, he made a, a movie on a bet uh, that <laughs> he could make a movie on limited time and budget. Limited time and budget? Oh yeah, wait, yeah. was this was this the original? Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm prefacing the original here. 
Okay, because the one I'm thinking of had like Steve Martin and stuff, and I'm like, oh no no no, yeah, I'm going to jump to that real quick. Okay. So yeah, the the original was this garbage movie <laughs> that he made on the cheap as a bet, and then okay. it became like a, a musical, and then was adapted into a uh, a movie directed by Frank Oz, and uh, okay, that movie I love, mm. uh, Little Shop of Horrors. I can't remember the last time I've seen it all the way through, but yeah. So just to to tie it all up. Originally a bad movie, which was adapted into a musical, and then the musical was adapted into another movie, and then that movie slash musical was adapted into this. Strangely, yes. All right. So uh, I'll quickly summarize the, the the original story. There's a orphan schmuck named uh, Seymour Krellborn uh, who works in a flower shop, and uh, he happens on a plant a strange plant that he grows, and it turns out to be a, an, an intelligent carnivorous plant. Uh, he's, he gets addicted to the fame it brings him, even though he has to feed it human flesh in order to keep its relationship. Hmm. And there's a love story and some other things going on there. So they adapt it into a cartoon simply called Little Shop. They change some things around, like the uh, uh, the characters are uh, of Seymour and his love interest, Audrey, are 13 in this thing. Hmm. So w- when this came out, you know, you think I'd have been really excited for it, but it didn't appeal to me when I was little because uh, it was probably partly the art style mm-hmm. uh, and also the introduction of rap into the property. Sure. Because like the original was all kind of like doo-wop songs, right? Yeah. Uh, the art style, um, it's very cartoony uh, and the backgrounds, you'd mentioned this on the uh, remake of Ant and the Aardvark where the colors seldomly match up to the lines of the background elements. I think I was talking about that, the original Ant and the Aardvark, but Oh, is yes. it? Yeah. Well, this, this has that, right? Yeah. So sometimes, sometimes those colors are like indicative of light or sometimes they're different background elements. It's a little weird to look at, but you know, I was, I was probably unfairly harsh on it as a kid. And as I said, the, the music in this, uh, the rap segments are just for Audrey Jr. The plant. Mm-hmm. Um, most of it is consistent with the doo-wop of the original. Yeah. And and the music in general is that uh, fine Haim Saban and Shuki Levy stuff. I yeah, really I saw, enjoyed it. saw those names in the credits and I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, the, the thing immediately grabs me. There's uh, The episodes have, like, a comedy segment before they come up to the, uh, like the episode title plate. And okay. this one starts off with Seymour in bed. And he's narrating, I'm Seymour Krellborn, and I spent 13 years trying to become a nerd. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's amazing. My <laughs> memory of this is that the as the episodes go on, um, the running gag is that he wants to be a nerd, but he's stuck on the status of weenie. Uh, yeah. So, so there's differences in the show. So he's not an orphan. And like originally, Audrey is uh, this misfortunate woman who works at the flower shop. But in here, they've outright made her the owner, Mr. Mr. Mushnik's uh, daughter. Yeah. And her character is way different, but man, you'd have to be since she's just a victim of abuse in the original storyline. But uh, mm. And also, uh, one of the key characters in the uh, movies is a sadistic dentist named Oren Scrivello. Mm-hmm. And here... Seymour has a school bully named uh, Payne Driller, 
but he seems to be a stand-in since he's got braces and headgear that at least uh, keep the dental theme attached to him. Yeah, I was wondering if it later was revealed that because I couldn't remember the dentist's name and I was right. wondering if maybe this was his son. Oh, but I, I don't know that that is true. I don't think it would work out based on he's supposed to be like a contemporary of Seymour and Audrey. Yeah, and the name um, isn't right. Oh, man, though, the Frank Oz movie worth seeing it just for Steve Martin as the sadistic Oren Scrivello. It's one of the scenes that I remember from that movie. Oh, it's hilarious. Him singing his song. I don't remember <laughs> yeah. the song, but it's... Yeah, everybody look that up. Look, look up uh, Steve Martin, Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. Anyway, for the cartoon Little Shop. Uh, Payne Driller is bullying Seymour, and he throws him in the trash. And the, the trash truck then picks it up and conveys him to the landfill. Uh, there he finds a what he thinks is a weird rock, but it turns out to be a millions-year-old plant seed. So it combines, he puts it in his lunchbox, and it combines with the wheat germ in it and grows into an intelligent, man-eating plant. And Seymour unwittingly nurses it, thinking that it, when he makes it grow, it'll impress Audrey, even though Audrey is only laser-focused on her obsession with becoming a firefighter. <laughs> so he names it Audrey Jr., and the movie calls it Audrey too. I think Jr. is a better choice, because we can just call it Jr., right? Yes, yeah. Okay, so here's the thing about this. Uh, Audrey Jr. is voiced by Buddy Lewis and Terry McGee for the singing, singing parts. Mm -hmm. Not Levi Stubbs from the Four Tops in Motown. Levi Stubbs has a great voice for Audrey too in the movie. Okay. Yeah, and he's noted for doing the voice, infamously, I guess, for doing the voice of Mother Brain in Captain N, the Game <gasps> oh Master. Oh my gosh, you're right! You didn't realize? I didn't know that, but as soon as you... I, I, I was picturing the movie version's voice, and then yeah. as soon as you said Mother Brain, it clicked. Yeah, so my memories of the show are not great, right? Right. And so I was like rubbing my hands when it came down to watch. I was thinking like, oh, yes, it's going to be Levi Stubbs, because I know he did a cartoon <laughs> voice. Right. No, it wasn't. It was Buddy Lewis, who's fine, but he's not Levi Stubbs. Man, yeah, oh, Levi now I'm thinking of what could have been. Uh, yeah, yeah. He unfortunately died in 2008 after some prolonged bad health. Aw. At any rate, so uh, Audrey Jr. helps Seymour behind the scenes, uh, well, in the cartoon in general. Uh, in this one, he, he stops Payne Driller from stealing from the flower shop cash register. Conversely, he also uh, hampers Seymour by doing things like ordering a pizza, which is the reason why Mr. Mushnick fires him. He also demonstrates that he's got uh, superpowers, probably when it's convenient, right? So the one he shows here is he makes a seed that he will fire at someone in order to make them think, well, the target is Audrey. The point is to make her think that Seymour is the coolest, but he misses and hits Pain Driller instead. Yeah, I think this is framed as the seed of an idea. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we fast forward the, the, the two, that is to say, uh, uh, Audrey Jr. and Seymour return to the city dump because Jr. wants to return to his home. Uh, but he finds that after being a seed for 200 million years that all this family is long gone. So he, he uh, decides, well, not only is his family gone, but plants are just, you know, inert objects now. Yeah. So 
he devises a plot that he's going to lead the plants in revolt. <laughs> There's a lot of musical numbers in this thing, and this is the second rap of the episode. So when he tries to make the flowers uh, get into a revolution, they don't turn sentient, which is a little weird because uh, they're singing flowers in the show. Yeah. But they're just artistic license, because in this case, they're not around, right? Right. Anyway, Seymour stands up for humanity and confronts Junior with Audrey's fire hose. But it ends up bursting and flooding the shop, uh, which makes Mr. Mushnik unhappy at first. But because uh, Audrey's, uh, uh, Audrey Junior's influence made all the flowers bloom and grow huge, Mr. Mushnik interprets this as Seymour's input that did all this, and he takes him back to his job. So this cartoon, like... Uh, Junior isn't overtly a villain as he is in the movie. No. In the movie, he calls himself a lean green mother from outer space. And he's bent on world conquest. I guess the outer space part is an obvious difference from his origin here. Yeah, that too, that too. In his dialogue, he alludes to being a man-eater. So he'll, there'll be jokes about how he talks, you know, about a bus is full of hors d'oeuvres or something like that, right? Yeah, okay. But it all really seems to be more comedic bluster than him actually getting close to eating any human being. Hmm. And more often than not, he's kind of helpful. So I, I think, in a way, this is like the Beetlejuice cartoon, cartoon treatment, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like in the Beetlejuice cartoon, he's no longer an unscrupulous villain. He's just a shady friend to Lydia. Right. Yeah. Same thing here with, with uh, Audrey Jr. Huh. Yeah. I hadn't made that... I... I hadn't made that equation, but you're you're absolutely right. That's exactly what it is. It it's probably what you have to do with this sort of thing that doesn't translate very well to a kids' cartoon. Oh sure, I mean you you know these are both Beetlejuice and Little Shop of Horrors are both things where the villain is the main character. Yeah, and you can't you you, you can't have them always antagonizing each other, especially in in this where the antagonistic aspect of Audrey Two is. The desire to eat humans. Right, right. You know, it's pretty funny. I was surprised because I didn't like the show much at the time, but the jokes in it are funny. There's like a running, uh, one of Payne Driller's thing is that his headgear is involved in very gadgety kind of ways. So like when he, hmm. <laughs> when he has to, he's trying to get into the uh, cash register, he has like a Swiss army knife of lockpicks that come out of his headgear. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think about this? Uh, I, I gather you think it's kind of a not, not a great show. <laughs> Actually, my opinion is very similar to yours. Yeah. Um, I went into it. The My memory of it was I, a, a few years ago. I can't remember how long ago, but within recent memory, I just on a whim went and found the, uh, the video of the theme song. Mm -hmm. And it's the cringiest sort of 1991 rap. Yeah, like, but you know, in the actual show, like, it's not great. The rhymes are not great, but they're not terrible either. Well, here's the thing. Like, they, the, so, okay, so the theme song, I, the thing that stuck in my head is this string of lyrics, mm -hmm. which goes, At the little shop, yeah, in full effect, yo, the little shop posse's gaining respect, so freak out before I put you in check. Mm-hmm. That means nothing. That's just 1991. <laughs> yeah. But, and so my, my thinking going into this was, 
oh, I, this is 90s. This is going to be, man, I, that's such a cringy opening I remember seeing. And then I watched the episode, mm-hmm. and it is really good. Right. I was actually really surprised by how much I liked it. I don't know that the music holds up that well, because it's like, you know, 1991 rap that's gone out of style. But it has, for cartoon songs, it has some of the better lyrics I've heard and the better songwriting. And, you know, it's like you said, it's uh, Saban and um, the other one. Uh, yeah, Shuki but, Levy. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, the- yeah. Like... The the musical people behind this are impeccable. Yeah. Um, the art style, I think, is really co- uh, cute. Yes. Like, well, co- interesting, cool, cute. I think a lot of the writing is really good. Like, I like that. Um, I like that Audrey is so obsessed with being a firefighter. I like that she's she comes in with that fire hose and she she was like they were having a fire sale in the hosiery department. Yes, that's a good good line. Yeah, that's good stuff. <laughs> uh, this show. This show actually, I don't know, I, I don't know if I'll say it held up, but I was surprised at how much I liked it. Yeah. I would totally watch more of this. Yeah, uh, you know, I did watch a little more of it. I think that Audrey's got a running gag that she has a new passion every episode. Oh, really? Yeah. So when something is introduced, like, like let's say the second episode, for example, there's a super refrigerator introduced. Okay. And she decides that like, uh, that being a firefighter is no longer her obsession. Instead, it's being a refrigerator repair woman. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's interesting then. It gives her fresh, uh, gives her fresh ways to be involved in the plot and to be funny. So that's really cool. I I like that as a running gag. Yeah. Um, I was sort of looking at you know how she would refer to things as wow pyrotechnic, right? And like you know she would have all these fire based catchphrases, but if they like if they change every episode, yeah, I think that's cool. I think like, she that's does. Really I, smart. I think she does have like chilling puns instead in the second episode. You're talking about the, the music being pretty good. I thought the uh, song, Mr. Mushnik's song about business being bad, was really good. Yeah, I don't remember specifically, but I do. Like I remember even even the raps, yeah. like are not bad. Like I mean, you know, like they're they're out of style. Well. But- but that's good, too, because it harkens to that era where, you know, like I said, at the time, yeah. I just thought, oh, I don't like this. But given some distance, you know, getting to hear those kind of 90s uh, hip hop sounds. And like I said, like compared to other cartoon songs of the time, like the the construction of the songs and the lyrics and everything is above average by far. You know, even like even the cheap gags and I mean, literally cheap or funny, like there's one point in this uh, first episode where Payne Driller, he, they're in the flower shop, and he hurls Seymour into a bunch of bags, uh-huh. and then a sign springs out of the bags that says compost. Right. Yeah, it's so, it's kind of and cheap, then, but it's also sort of funny, you know? Yeah, and for the rest of that sequence, just visually, like, it's just Seymour's head and arms and legs sticking out of the um, the bags of fertilizer, not even like in proportion to whether it'd be on his body, but just like the, the bags of compost are now his body. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, I'm with you. I, I was really surprised. I, I halfway went into this thinking that it might torture you a little. Yeah. I was mostly thinking of the nineties thing. Right. And I was thinking like, Ooh, this could go bad. And then I watched it and I was like, you know what? I really like this. And I bet Micah will too. Well, bingo. Yeah. Good stuff. Right. All right. Cool. So I think that's it for this show. 
uh, except mm -hmm. for we have to dole out some assignments. Yeah, we just kind of on a lazy whim decided to go for 70s cartoons this time, mm -hmm. just to counteract the 90s ones, which turned out to be more of a chore than I expected. Because <laughs> a lot of cartoons came out in the 70s, but the only... Most of them are just so well-known that they're not worth talking about. Well... Or they're not very well-known for a reason. Okay, sure. <laughs> um, one that I thought might engender some interesting discussion, just because it's the, a theme that sort of fascinates me, and I would like an excuse to talk about it. So I'm going to make you watch it. Yeah. And start the discussion. Okay. Um, I want you to watch an episode of the 1973 animated Adams Family cartoon. Ah. The episode... I, I I tried going for what I thought was the first episode, although they seem to be in a weird order. Yes. Um, But it turned out to be about uh, Lurch telling a pen pal that he had a job other than Butler. Oh. And so the Adams Family was like, oh, we'll help you be a rock star. And it was like, oh, we've already covered this territory. This is a real Andre's giant problem thing. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So instead, I want you to watch an episode, I believe it's called The Adams Family in New York City. Okay, so, what I would like you to watch is the first episode of Return to the Planet of the Apes. Oh, weird. Yeah. I didn't know there was a... Hmm. I guess it makes sense. There was an everything for the Planet of the Apes. Right. The first episode is called Flames of Doom. Okay. Yeah, don't know how it's going to go, because it's... Uh, well, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get into it next time. So, great. That gives us a great jumping-off point for next week, where we'll discuss the Addams Family and the Planet of the Apes, two uh, staples of the 60s. 70s. Um, well, it, 60s, I mean, these yeah. would have been... Right. Yeah, they, these were 60s things reimagined for the 70s. Actually, Addams Family might have been before the... Whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Um, whatever. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that gives us a jumping off point for next week. So uh, thank you for watching our fun cartoon show this week, uh, orally. As always, please give us your feedback because we would love to hear it. And remember to subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Uh, if you want to talk to us directly, I'm AC Matsy on Twitter. All right, thanks for watching, folks. I'm at DrabSwatch on Twitter. And as always... Honor the Celery Stalker's slogan. I've got everything it takes to be a nerd. Ah!